We turn in the Holy Scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 2. We will read verses 1 through 31 of the chapter. Let us hear the word of God, Deuteronomy 2. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me. And we compassed about, compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough, turn ye, turn you northward. And command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a foot breadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. Ye shall buy meat of them for money, that ye may eat. And ye shall also buy water of them for money that ye may drink. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. And when we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain from Elath, and from Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar unto the children of Lot for a possession. The Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants, as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. The Horims also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them, when they had destroyed them from before them, and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. Now rise up, said I, and get you over the brook Zered. And we went over the brook Zered. And the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was thirty and eight years, until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host as the Lord sware unto them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. So it came to pass, when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people, that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou art to pass over through Ar, the coast of Moab, this day. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. That also 
was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, and the Ammonites called them Zemzumims, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. As he did to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horims from before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead even unto this day. And the Avims, which dwelt in Hazirim, even unto Aza, the Kaphtarims, which came forth out of Kaphtor, destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. Rise ye up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given into thine hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it, and contend with him in battle. This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedemoth unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through thy land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn unto the right hand nor to the left. Thou shalt sell me meat for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. As the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwell in Ar, did unto me, until I shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord our God giveth us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand, as appeareth this day. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land before thee, begin to possess that thou mayest inherit his land. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. On the basis of this historical passage, as well as the rest of Scripture, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 42. Lord's Day 42 explains the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Question 110, what doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices, whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse, and waste of his gifts. But what doth God require in this commandment? That I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also that I faithfully labor, so that I may be able to relieve the needy. The book of Deuteronomy is 
Moses' last words to the children of Israel as they stand poised to enter into the land of Canaan and by the direction of God take possession of it after 40 years of chastening in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy chapter 2, which we read, contains God's instructions to Israel as they prepare to enter into the very first phase of the conquest of Canaan. Specifically, it contains instructions about how Israel is to deal with certain nations that were situated to the east of Jordan. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amorites. And if you read this passage carefully or listened carefully as it was read, you will see how these instructions of God have connection to the Eighth Commandment, which is the subject of the sermon this morning. In these instructions in Deuteronomy 2, God tells Israel how they are to treat the property of their neighbors. And that's striking. Even during the conquest of Canaan, God requires Israel to observe the Eighth Commandment, not to steal. And so God gives explicit instruction concerning what land they are to take because God is pleased to give it to them and how they are to regard the land that God has given to their neighbors. And in this history, we see instruction that has enduring significance for us today. God is concerned with property. God is concerned with our view of property and how we handle our property and how we treat the property of the neighbor. And God's will concerning property is concisely expressed in the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. So with the help of this historical passage, let us consider the catechism's instruction on the eighth commandment. The theme is God's command concerning property. We're going to look at that command as it touches on three different ideas. Yours, or rather theirs, yours, and God's. Their property, your property, God's property. And see the relationship of those things. God's command concerning property. Theirs, yours, God's. We begin with an important question. Is there really such a thing as Property. We understand what the word property means. It refers to things of this world that are in my possession that I have and may use and consider my own. Is there really such a thing as property? Can we speak of theirs, the neighbor's property, and yours, your property, mine, my property? After all, is not everything God's. We have to nail down the proper biblical concept of property, and we start where we will ultimately end, with God. That's where we must start, because yes, it is true. God owns everything, period. Everything that exists is God's property. The universe, God made it. The classic Text proving this, Psalm 24, verse 1. 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. And notice, God not only owns the earth, and by implication every earth, every planet, every body that populates the expanse of the universe, God owns the brute creation, but also everything in it, the fullness thereof. Not just objects, but people too. They that dwell therein, the psalm says. Why God owns everything is self-evident. God is God. He is the creator. He is the sovereign governor and upholder of all things. He owns what he made. All that is called creature is the handiwork of God. The creature is God's property. God gives the creature being. God gives the creature existence. God has sovereign rights over the creature. Whether it be the soil of this earth. Whether it be the stars of the expanse of heaven. Whether it be the plants. Whether it be the lowliest animals. Whether it be a human being. Whether it be the loftiest of angels. God made them. God owns them. And God has the sovereign right to do with them as he pleases, according to his perfect will. And so, in the ultimate sense, there is no theirs, yours, mine. Not in the ultimate sense. There is only God's. All things belong to God. Even those things that we would think are certainly ours. That income which we take in, by the sweat of our brow, we worked, we earned it, it's ours. Not in the ultimate sense, it's God's, who made it and who gave it, and who gave you the energy to work by which you have obtained that income. The things we make with our hands, or come up with our minds, they're ours, right? Not in the ultimate sense. For everything we make, we use the things God has made to make that thing. And the very hands and minds that we use in the making of it are hands and minds that God has made. Everything is God's. Yet, nevertheless, there is such a thing as property. We can say theirs, yours, mine. Not in the ultimate sense, but in a relative sense with this understanding that God owns everything and yet according to his will, God is pleased to give a portion of his property into the hands of people. He gives you yours. He gives the neighbor theirs. He gives me Mine, and this is all according to his sovereign will. We don't own those things in the ultimate sense, but they are entrusted to us by God, according to his wisdom. He chooses what to give you, what to give the neighbor. He chooses the amount to give you and the amount to give the neighbor. He chooses when to give you this and take that. God owns all. And he is sovereign in the distribution of all that is his. And so when we speak of property, human property, our property, private property, we speak of it with this understanding that the word which defines our relationship to things in this world is not the word ownership. We use that word. You own your house. You own your car. But again, only in the relative sense. The word that better describes our relationship to all of these things in our possession is stewardship. 
We know what a steward is. A steward was a servant under a wealthy landowner. And the steward, he didn't own anything that his master had. But the steward's work was this. He cared for his master's possessions. The landowner trusted his steward and delivered into his steward's hands his property. And the steward was given the honorable task of responsibly managing that property, caring for that property, using that property, and even enjoying it in a certain way, but all for the glory and the advantage of the master. That's what we are. We are stewards. And everything that comes into our hands, into our possession, is God's property given us to manage for him. For him. That's how we are to look at theirs, yours, mine, God's, ultimately. And now that brings us to the Eighth Commandment and what it forbids and what it requires. That's the foundational principle that defines the Christian understanding of property. All is God's, and whatever is mine, I am simply a steward of. And whatever is theirs, the neighbors, God has given it to them, for them to be a steward over that. The Eighth Commandment then reveals God's will with regard to the things that He entrusts to the stewardship of men. And God's will concerning the things he entrusts to men is this, thou shalt not steal. That is, thou shalt respect my sovereign distribution of my property and as a steward, humbly submit to that distribution. Respect my distribution of property. Respect my distribution of property to your neighbor, and respect my distribution of property to you. God commands us to respect then the neighbor's property, and that's on the foreground in the eighth commandment. Respect his property. God gave it to him. Respect his property regardless of what you think of him. Regardless of who he is. Regardless of whether you think he deserves that property. There are many wicked men in this world that we can look at and say, they really don't deserve that. We see the wicked spreading themselves out like a bay tree. We can envy the wicked. We can be upset that the wicked have so much and we must work so hard for a more meager sum of money and possessions. And we must always remember it is God who is sovereign over these things and we submit to his will, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when it doesn't seem fair. No, God is all wise. He owns all things and he distributes to the stewardship of men as he is pleased. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt respect the distribution of property that is according to the will of the sole owner of all things. So your neighbor's possessions, theirs, everything that's in their hands, God Put it there. And that's a lesson that God taught Israel as they prepared to enter into Canaan. And that's a lesson that comes out in the history that we read. It's striking, isn't it, that right from the get-go, as Israel is preparing to go and to capture the very first land in the conquest of Canaan, that God gives instruction concerning the Eighth Commandment. Even in the conquest of Canaan, Israel must not steal. 
The conquest of Canaan was not a free-for-all land grab. The conquest of Canaan was not a time in which God gave Israel license to kill and to rob indiscriminately. No, the conquest of Canaan was God's own sovereign redistribution of land. In his providence, he had given certain lands to those wicked Canaanite tribes. But now, their cup of iniquity has been filled up. And God, as is his right, will dispossess them and give that land which he had promised to Abraham. He will give that land to the children of Israel. And that is his sovereign right. He is the sovereign owner. The conquest of Canaan is God's sovereign redistribution of his property. And as for the destruction of those wicked Canaanite tribes, that's not murder and robbery on the part of Israel. It would be if they did that of their own will, of their own desire and of their own accord. But no, they were ordered by God to destroy those Canaanite tribes. The Israelite sword was the means by which God executed sovereign retribution upon those wicked nations. And so in the conquest of Canaan, we have God's sovereign retribution, his destruction of those wicked tribes, and his sovereign redistribution of certain lands, giving the promised land to his people Israel. But now, an interesting detail about the text is that God, while giving explicit commands what nations to destroy and dispossess, God also gives Israel commands to leave other nations alone, not to meddle with them. Not to contend with them in battle. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, as well as the Moabites and the Ammonites who were descendants from Lot. And in this chapter, God speaks about how he sovereignly dispossessed the nations that were there before. The Horams, the Emims, the Zamzumims, and all of those other strange names. God destroyed them and gave their land to the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. That was his sovereign right. But now he tells Israel, I've given that land to them. Don't touch it. It's theirs, according to my sovereign will. For example, in verses 5 and 6, God says this about Edom, the descendants of Esau. Verses 5 and 6, meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. There, you, you see the language of possession. I will not give you of their land. It's theirs. Not in the ultimate sense, as the chapter brings out, God gave it to them. And God, who is sovereign, may give their land to another if he wishes. But God's will is that the Edomites possess Mount Seir. And so God says to Israel, Don't meddle with them. No, not so much as a foot breadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. God commands Israel to respect the property of their unbelieving neighbors. It doesn't matter who the neighbor is. Yes, Esau was related to Israel, and that goes back to Jacob and Esau. Nonetheless, the Edomites would prove to be a vicious enemy of the Israelites. They were unbelieving neighbors, and yet God says, respect the property that I have given to your unbelieving neighbor. And that goes for us too. Christian may never think that because his neighbor is an unbeliever, he can be lax 
on the requirement of the Eighth Commandment towards him. No, the Eighth Commandment applies to every neighbor equally. We are not to steal, not to take from him. We are not to covet his possessions. We are not in any way to exploit him. In fact, we are to exert ourselves to promote his good. The good of his property. Seek his well-being as much as we can or may. And that comes out here in this text. And what was the case for the Edomites was also the case for the Moabites and the Ammonites. You see that in verses 9 and 19. God said, don't contend with them. I will not give you their land. Another interesting thing comes out in verse 6. We'll go back to verse 6. Where God instructs Israel what to do when they pass through the Edomite territory. Respect their property. Don't try to swindle them. Don't just take things. Rather, ye shall buy meat of them for money that ye may eat. And ye shall also buy water of them for money that ye may drink. Be honest and fair in your business dealings with the Edomites. Observe the Eighth Commandment. That was God's instruction for Israel. It is God's instruction for us as we live in the midst of this world. Respect God's distribution of property. So now to wrap up the first point regarding theirs, the property of the neighbor, let's look at two parts then, the the negative and the positive of the commandment itself, thou shalt not steal. Respecting the neighbor's property means not trying to take it for ourselves. There's manifold ways that we can try to justify that. The commandment is plain and simple. Don't take what God gave to the neighbor. The catechism puts it this way. Really, this is the catechism's definition of stealing in the middle of answer 110. God comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves, and appropriate means take for ourselves, the goods which belong to our neighbor. And then it describes the manner or the way that we might do that. It may be by force, or it may be under the appearance of right. And then the catechism gives several examples of theft that is deceitful and under the appearance of right. Unjust weights, L's, L's was simply a unit of measurement back in the day. Measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury that is exacting exorbitant interest, or any other way forbidden by God. The Catechism acknowledges there's a whole lot more. Space prohibits us from continuing the list. That's what the Eighth Commandment forbids. Thou shalt not steal. It's plain and simple. What God put in your neighbor's hands, leave in your neighbor's hands. Don't take it into your hands by force or by deceit. The only way to appropriate your neighbor's goods is through a fair and honest transaction in which goods change hands. Not theft. Like the rest of the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment forbids the grossest form of This sin, stealing, sets before us especially those sins that are punishable by the magistrate, those thefts involving force and violence, bank robbery, shoplifting, carjacking, and the rest. 
Thanks be to God that those sins are not often found in the church. That's due to His grace, though they can be. Sometimes they are because those sins are in our sinful nature. Let us not write off that part of the catechism as if we don't need to be warned about that. That's where covetousness leads. That's where envy leads. That's where a desire for the neighbor's goods and a discontent with what God has given me leads. Let us be warned. We have a thieves' nature. We are as capable of these things. We are as capable as the burglar out on the street. But in God's eyes, stealing is much more. Stealing isn't just by force. The more refined forms of stealing are very common. By deceit. Any dishonest device or dishonest dealing in which we gain something or gain some advantage at the expense of our neighbor by tricking them, that's stealing. And that language needs to to, to live in our hearts. That's language that should govern our conduct, in our dealings with the neighbor, in our business dealings, in our transactions, in our management of earthly things. There should be no dishonesty, no design to get something at the neighbor's expense without him knowing, by being dishonest or deceptive. God considers all such things so when we sell things we don't portray faulty merchandise to be it's just good nothing wrong here no problem here if there's a serious fault with it we disclose that we're not misleading in our business dealings we mustn't be we mustn't borrow and not give back we mustn't damage the neighbor's property perhaps on accident and then not tell him and let him bear the cost all of those things in God's eyes are Stealing. Yes, failing to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. As despicable as Caesar can be, we must render to him what is his. In all dealings with our neighbor, involving property and possessions, in every exchange of goods and services, let the rule of love be our guide. Honest, upfront, fair. Looking out not only for self, but also for the neighbor. Not cheating, not shortchanging, not misleading, but following Jesus' golden rule, which the catechism aptly applies here. The golden rule, deal with your neighbor as you want him to deal with you. And that leads us then to the positive. Respect your neighbor's property. Thou shalt not steal. Don't take what God has given to him. Don't take it unlawfully. But now the positive flip side of that is respect your neighbor's property by seeking to promote his advantage as much as you can and as much as is lawful for you to do. We're in the second table of the law. What is the second table about? How does Jesus summarize the second table? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Part of loving the neighbor is respecting his property and caring for his material well-being. That's part of loving the neighbor. And remember also the connection between the second table and the first table. 
These aren't two tables divorced from each other. The second table is love thy neighbor as thyself. The first is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And part of loving God is loving the neighbor. By loving the neighbor, we love God. By respecting the neighbor's property, we respect God's sovereign distribution of all property. Loving the neighbor promoting as much as we can his material well-being, respecting his property, looking out for him on a creaturely level, honors God as well. That's the positive side. And that also shows us then why stealing is so odious, so bad in God's eyes. Stealing is hatred of the neighbor. When we steal, In that moment, we are saying, I don't care about the neighbor. Or even saying, I don't care about God. I only care about me. And I'm willing to hurt the neighbor by taking what is his, and I am willing to disregard the sovereign God in order to have that thing. Thievery is hatred for the neighbor and hatred for God. It is a disregard for the well-being of the neighbor, and it is Rebellion against the sovereign distribution of God, all for the sake of me and my wants. That's what stealing ultimately is in God's eyes. Whether it's a bank robbery, or whether it's a dishonest business transaction, whatever it may be. Thus, we see why to take this seriously. That's what stealing is in the eyes of God. Stealing ought also to be ugly, odious, bad in our eyes as well. And so the eighth commandment says, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt do good to your neighbor. And we saw how that came out in Deuteronomy 2. We go back to verse 6. We looked at that, how God commands Israel to be honest and fair. In their, business de- in their business dealings with the Edomites as they're passing through Mount Seir and the borders of Edom. That was a command to promote the good and material well-being of their neighbors. No matter who the neighbor is. Even an unbelieving Edomite. Even the obnoxious neighbor next door. Even that guy you don't like. It doesn't matter. Look above all to God, who is the owner, who gave that neighbor his property. The God who says, love me and love your neighbor as yourself. And love me and love your neighbor by respecting my distribution of my property to him. So there's a couple applications then. Applications that... We can tailor especially to the workplace because lots of us go to a workplace. Lots of us are employed or are employers. The Bible gives us a beautiful business ethic and a beautiful labor ethic. We mustn't borrow our business ethics and our labor practices from the world. Christians, look out. For their neighbors 
as well as themselves. Christians are honest and fair in their business dealings. And so for the boss, for the employer, this means don't exploit your workers. That's thievery. Don't try to get as much labor out of them and as many hours out of them as you can while paying them as little as you possibly can. And workers, employees, don't try to get as much as you can out of your employer while putting as little as you can into your job in terms of effort and hours. That is thievery as well. God's design is that we should earn a fair wage by a fair day's labor. That should be the Christian business and work ethic. Workers too, don't be trying to undermine your employer's business in order to exercise some leverage over them so that they will give you more. That's dishonest. That's thievery. That's why labor unions are thieves organizations and Christians may not be a part of them. Honest business. The Eighth Commandment shapes a uniquely Christian business ethic in which both employer and employee care about each other, look out for the well-being of each other, in which both employer and employee does not try to exploit the other to maximize their own gain, but sees the workplace as a place of Christian ministry in which we serve each other. That doesn't mean we can't do good business. No, we do. We have to. That's the world. But we must be compassionate and abide by God's law in the doing of our business. We must have a different spirit, a different mindset, a different attitude than the world when it comes to work and labor and earning one's income. The world is consumed by selfishness. It's everyone for themselves. Covetousness, rebellion against God's distribution. Those who have less hate those who have more. Those who have less demand that they get more at the expense of others. And those who have a lot don't want anything done that will make them lose what they have or give them more obligations to those who have less. Let it not be so among the Christian people. Let this define our relationship to our neighbor, his things, business, work, and all the rest, that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. That's the word of God concerning theirs, their property. But the Eighth Commandment not only reveals God's will for how we are to treat our neighbor's property, the Eighth Commandment also has a lot to say about how we treat our own property. Yours. That which the sovereign God has entrusted into your stewardship. All that you have. Your income, your house, your car, all the rest. Yours. And now there's especially two applications of the Eighth Commandment that I want to focus on concerning yours and mine. The first is how we get our property, and the second is how we use our property. In this world, we get property. We keep on getting property. We have to keep on getting property to survive. We need food, we need drink, 
and other consumable things such as that. And we work to get those things. We get a house. We get other things. There is so much getting in this world and in this life. And the Eighth Commandment tells us how to get things. Not by theft. Not by taking what God has given to others. Get, not by theft, but get by labor. By labor. Answer 111 explains this positive dimension of the Eighth Commandment after the part which we just read, the last line, further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. That's God's prescribed way in which we are to get things. Labor. That is, faithfully and diligently laboring in an honest occupation. We see then that it's not wrong to desire things or to work to get things. That's part of life in this world. That's part of being a creature. It's not wrong to desire things as long as we don't set our hearts upon them. It's not wrong to strive to acquire certain goods in this world, provided that in so doing, we don't sideline our more important responsibilities, callings, obligations, priorities, the kingdom of Christ, its causes, the church, covenant education, and the rest. If ever our striving and working to get certain things displaces those things that God says are to be our priority, then mammon has achieved a level of priority and status in our lives that it ought not to have. But with those qualifications, it's not wrong to get and to work to get. We just have to guard our hearts that earthly things don't become our treasures. And we need to know our sinful nature, which is ever inclined to let earthly, earthly things climb their way up onto the throne of our hearts and usurp God's place. We must be on guard. But it's not wrong to work to get. And the upright way to work to get the things that we need in this life, as well as other things, is honest work. Work is good. God made man to work. We know that from Genesis 1 and 2, God put Adam in the garden to dress and keep it. And even after the fall, God expressed his will to man that by the sweat of his brow he would eat bread. We must work. And this dignifies labor, whatever our labor may be. It doesn't matter what the world says about your job. It doesn't matter what men think, whether it's lowly, whether it's respectable. Man's opinion doesn't matter. In God's eyes, the Christian who labors cheerfully and diligently, even in the meanest of tasks and the lowliest of jobs, glorifies God. And that labor has dignity. And God is pleased in the way of that labor to provide us with our earthly needs the things of this life. Labor. The flip side of that then is the Eighth Commandment says don't be lazy and don't be idle. Laziness and idleness are forms of thievery. God has joined laboring in our calling with 
earning a living. God has joined those two together. That's his will. And we must not put asunder what God has joined together. Working and earning our keep. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if any man would not work, meaning was unwilling to work, neither should he eat. Because that man, by his laziness or his idleness, attempted to put asunder two things God has joined together. The upright way to get is labor. Faithful labor. So let's be diligent in our callings. That's the eighth commandment to us. Even when the work is hard, even when the work is unpleasant, let's be diligent in our work, our callings, whatever that may be. The workplace, home, school. For the youth, as you get older and are able to get a job, put yourself out there and find a job that's good, that's healthy, that's God's will for his people. Even though the starting jobs that many of us get when we are young are not our favorites, they're not always pleasant, yet nonetheless, laboring at a job cheerfully unto the Lord is a dignified thing. And God uses that too to prepare us for life in this world. Life in this world isn't staying in the basement forever, but working. That's God's will for us. God has made us to work. So let us be encouraged to be diligent in our daily labors and callings, whether young or old. But now, the catechism emphasizes something else with regard to our labor. Striking, isn't it? The catechism doesn't say, faithfully labor that I may obtain the things that I need and want. That's implied. But what the catechism says is, That I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. And what the catechism is teaching us here is that a conscious goal and purpose in our labor ought to be this. That I have something to give to the poor. I work to give. I labor to give. That's of the essence of the Christian life. The Christian life is defined by Jesus Christ who is the greatest giver of all. He gave himself to the death of the cross to redeem us from sin and death. To pay our debts and give us the blessed gift of everlasting salvation. And he has put his spirit in our hearts. The spirit who renews us after his image. And we reflect the glory of Christ who gave himself for us when we labor to give. Look at how much Christ labored to give to us. So ought we to labor to To give. Giving is an important part of the Christian life. This connection that the catechism makes is explicitly biblical. It's drawn from Ephesians 4 verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. There's a beautiful connection of ideas there. The opposite of stealing is laboring and giving. And that's what the Christian life ought to look like. A life of faithful service and labor in our callings for the glory of God and of generous giving. That's the opposite of our sinful flesh, which is a thieving flesh. Our 
thieving nature which wants to grab and to take and to have and to keep. Which steals, steals more, and doesn't give. So we labor that we may give. And that points out then this other important truth that when a man is lazy or idle, he robs the poor. He's called to work not only to provide for himself and his own, but to relieve the needy. So that's, that's the first positive side of the, the, the eighth commandment as regards yours, your property. But now let's move to the second. The eighth commandment not only addresses getting property, but the use of property. How we use what's yours. Possible to steal in the way we use our own property that God has given us. So we must avoid theft in the way we use our property, as well as making sure that we use it rightly for the glory of God. Remember, we're stewards. We're stewards. That means, in the first place, we must handle responsibly the things God gives us. We're not the owners, we're just caretakers of everything that comes into our possession. Caretakers who are beholden to the owner, God, and who are accountable to him for the usage of all that he puts in our hands. And that biblical truth needs to live in our hearts and minds. It needs to be in the forefront of our minds as we manage and use the things that God has given us. Responsibly for his glory. Being good stewards in our purchases, we pull out the credit card, and all of the rest. God has given us property to use, and we may use it. But before his face, remembering, I'm a steward. I don't have the right to do with my property anything I want, because it's not ultimately mine. It's God's. So the negative flip side of that is don't abuse or waste God's gifts. That's a question and answer 110 ends. The Eighth Commandment also forbids all abuse and waste of God's gifts. And there's a few ways that that can be done. We can waste by hoarding keeping to ourselves and massing a pile of earthly stuff just for me. Think of Luke 12, the parable of the farmer who builds bigger barns. God prospered his labor as a farmer. He brought in a great harvest, but what was his mindset? What was his approach to that increase God gave him? All mine. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns so that I can store it all the way for me. And his heart was revealed there. His God was his stuff. And because his stuff was his God, he also trusted in his stuff. He looked to his stuff for security, for happiness, for safety in the years to come. But then the day came when his soul was required of him. And what did all of that stored up stuff do him? Nothing. He came into the world with nothing and he left the world with nothing. That was a waste. Now, we understand. The point is not this. You may not store away for the future. No. 
being a responsible steward is saving away for the future, storing up for the future. The point is, that's not all we are to do with what God has given us. And our focus must not exclusively be on me and myself and I. This man, rather than building gigantic barns, could have taken some of that increase and stored it away, but used another portion of that increase to bless the work of the kingdom or to relieve the needy in his synagogue. Not waste by hoarding. But another way of wasting God's gifts is indulgence. And we can see an example of that if we move a few chapters ahead in Luke to Luke 15, the prodigal son. What does the prodigal son do after he extracts his inheritance from his father? He runs off into a foreign land and wastes it, squanders it in riotous living, irresponsibly spending, living in the moment, living outside of his means, indulging in all of the best that the world has to offer. After all, I've got all kinds of money, and so I can buy these things. And he wasted it. And the consequence was that before long he found himself feeding pigs. And so hungry he wanted to eat the husks the pigs were eating. That was a waste of God's gifts too. Not that we may never enjoy God's gifts. We'll see that in a minute. But that he squandered them unnecessarily and irresponsibly. The Eighth Commandment calls us us to responsibly manage. And part of that responsible management means this. In our personal enjoyment of the property God gives us, let us be responsible there too. And also moderate in our use of these things. We can enjoy them. We must see that too. We can. Just as it's not wrong to desire things, or to work to get property, it's not wrong to enjoy the property God has given us. God gave Israel a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, of course, that flowing of milk and honey, those riches were types, they were pictures of the spiritual riches of the kingdom of heaven. Nonetheless, Israel entered that land and received a bounty of earthly goods, and the Israelites enjoyed those things, and that was not wrong. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. But in our enjoyment of the property God has given us, we must be grateful, content, generous, spiritually minded in our use of that property. Grateful, acknowledging God is the giver and praising Him for it. Content, accepting the measure that God has given me at this time and not coveting what God gives to the neighbor. Coveting is theft of the heart. Generous in that I'm not a grasping, hoarding person, but one willing to share, not only by relieving the poor, but being hospitable, using what God has given me for the good of my neighbor and spiritually minded so that we handle the earthly goods of this life before the face of God and in light of eternity. These things are vain. They do not last. We didn't bring them into the world with us. We're not going to take them out of the world with us. These things are not our treasures. And so we don't look to these things to give us ultimate satisfaction. 
ultimate satisfaction is found only in Jesus Christ and the true everlasting riches that are ours through him, our imperishable inheritance in glory. And so now we come back to God. We started there, all things are God's. And all things that are God's must ultimately come back to God and be for God. God gives us stuff. And now in our use of that stuff, we are to use it for God so that the glory is God's and so that our use of that stuff serves the cause of God. All things are God's and all things are for God. God has given to us generously so that we may glorify Him, so that His gifts may redound back to Him. His praise and thanks. The versification of Psalm 50 that we sang before the sermon, the last stanza, expresses that beautifully. God says, deliverance I will send to thee, and praises thou shalt give to me. Talking especially about salvation, but that applies also to everything God gives us. God gives us that we may respond in praise to him. Consider how worthy God is of that praise. Yes, because he's creator. Yes, because he's made this beautiful world. Yes, because he gives us so many good, rich gifts that we enjoy and are thankful for. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. The bread, the wine, the oil, all of it. But he is worthy of praise, especially because of what he has done for us and with us. By nature, we are mammon worshippers. And mammon worshippers go to hell. By nature, we are in bondage to the things of this world. That's the sinner. That's the sinner as described in Romans chapter 1. He suppresses the knowledge of the one true God, even though that knowledge is evident in all of the handiwork of God. And instead, he turns to the creature. And he worships the creature over the creator. He looks for his satisfaction, his delight, his purpose in life. In all of the riches and things of this world. He's a slave to mammon. A worshiper of mammon. And mammon worshipers deserve eternal condemnation. That's what we are by nature. That's where our sin plunges us. Sinners are unfaithful stewards. Has not... The Eighth Commandment exposed that to us, how much sin is yet in our lives, how often we transgress this commandment. We are thieves, one and all. Sin makes us love the things of this world, so much so that often we love them more than the Creator. We can lust for riches more than we yearn for God. We can worship the creature over the living God. We can enjoy the things of this world so much so that they are more of a priority to us than the things of the kingdom of heaven. How often in our lives does the question come before us? Choose this day who who you will serve. And we say in our hearts, Mammon, because I can't serve two masters. And I like mammon better right now. Unfaithful stewards. And unfaithful stewards deserve deposition from stewardship and to be cast away from the master.
What was God's solution? Salvation. Jehovah's salvation. Jesus Christ. The Son who comes into our flesh to redeem us at the highest price. His own shed blood. Christ to whom everything belonged. He left the glory of heaven. He entered into our poverty and became poor to make us rich. Not to give us lots of money, but to give us the riches of salvation. The kingdom of heaven and imperishable inheritance in Christ. Christ labored to relieve the needy. You and I and all of his elect people so desperately needy in our sins. He labored. He labored the greatest labor. He labored that labor on the cross. To redeem us. To buy us. His shed blood. To buy us from the bondage of sin. To buy us from the bondage of mammon worship. And mammon slavery. To make us his own. His own peculiar treasure and purchased possession. And the effect of that redemptive work of Jesus Christ is that our sins are forgiven. We have a place in God's kingdom and our relationship to the things of this world is no longer defined by sin, but is defined by faith in Christ. We are redeemed unto the right use of these earthly things, which are not a curse to us anymore, but a gift For us to use to glorify the God of our salvation. We are redeemed unto the sanctified use and sanctified enjoyment. Earthly things. There's where gratitude comes to the forefront again. This is why we heed the eighth commandment. We're grateful to the Christ. Who saved us from sin. Saved us from slavery to these things. So that now. We may dedicate them to the glory of God. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this word, this eighth commandment, which instructs us concerning the use of earthly things. Hide this word in our hearts, that it may guide us in the management of our possessions, that we may be good stewards who are content and grateful and to take all things that are thine and use them for thee. Grant us this grace through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.